Welcome to Law in the Family, a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section, providing insights for lawyers about the practice of family law in Pennsylvania. The information shared during this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create, and receipt or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the podcast guests, and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Hello, this is Anthony Hoover. We are recording a podcast for the Family Law Section of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. On this podcast, we have Catherine McFadden. And Aaron, why don't, why don't you introduce yourself? Well, I'm Aaron Weems. I'm an attorney with Fox Rothschild in our Montgomery County office. So, Catherine, before we get started here and talk about alimony, just could you, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? So, I'm an attorney with the firm of Momjin Anderer in Center City, Philadelphia. Before that, I was with Schneider Harrison, also in Philadelphia. And before that, for many years, I was the hearing officer in divorce in the Bucks County Master's Unit. First, just the hearing officer and then later director of the unit. So that's who I am. And Kathy, how long have you been? I mean, I know you're not necessarily representing clients as a hearing master, but you're by in all intents and purposes, very much involved in family law. So how long have you been involved in family law? 39 years. All right. So let's just dive right in. The The title of this podcast is, Is Alimony Dead? Kathy, we're going to start with you because you just did a recently, you recently did a great article. I'm going to ask you the question, is alimony dead? Is it a debt? Or is it, de- is alimony dead? Oh, dead. Is, is, dead. is, is it dead? No, is it alive? No. no, alimony is not dead. Alimony is alive. It may not be real predictable, but it's definitely alive. And just from the perspective of trends and more modern trends in in particular what has your research and and what have you seen so i think there are some interesting i don't know if you call them trends maybe trends about alimony one of the things that i think is interesting is that as you look over the cases that have been to the superior court and occasionally the supreme court over the past 40 years the vast majority of them First of all, affirm the alimony award. If it's not affirmed, it's more likely to be reversed as too little than as too much. There's only four or five cases where the appellate courts have found that a trial court awarded too much alimony. And those cases are kind of obvious situations where, for example, the alimony award made the recipient's income exceed the payor's income, that sort of thing. There's many cases, I don't know how many cases, and, and we don't necessarily team where the, this, the superior court found that the award was insufficient. There's 26 cases where indefinite, alim, indefinite alimony, alimony was affirmed, 77 cases where definite alimony was affirmed, 39 cases where alimony denials were affirmed, Many of those cases, again, are obvious. There are cases where there was a very big property distribution or cases where there's a very small income disparity. So I think that that's one interesting observation about the caseload. Anybody who thinks alimony is dead, these cases don't suggest it's dead. And one thing that just I even heard you say there is indefinite alimony. I know we certainly will have family law attorneys listening to this podcast. But for for those who do not regularly practice in family law, 
When you say indefinite alimony, what do you refer to in that regard? Indefinite alimony is an award of alimony that does not have a set end date. Um, it could end before people die, but it's not scheduled to end. It, it's subject to modification. It can go up or it can go down. It can end sooner or later, but there's no set term. A definite award has a set term. It'll be X number of dollars for 10 years or five years or seven years, something like that. And just from your perspective, what have you seen the courts rely upon? And and I think not to say that this is really, you know, shocking in a sense, but I think that what you're saying is that not only is alimony not dead, but that it's well alive, particularly in lights of the Pennsylvania appellate courts. Right. And what, what are they relying on, at, you know, for these types of alimony awards in those alimony type cases? It, it's really interesting. There's a number of factors that are common in cases where alimony is awarded and in cases where alimony is awarded for some significant duration. And those factors are a recipient who's in ill health, a recipient who has responsibility for children, particularly if there's a child in ill health. Another factor may be a big difference in income where one party was the homemaker and the other party was the breadwinner. Yeah, Aaron, go, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you, you just caused me to think about something which I think often comes up is what the impact is of the current circumstances history of the case. And you mentioned someone is Ill, someone's disabled, someone's raising children. Do you find that there's a tendency to weigh the almost have a regency bias on the award of alimony relative to the rest of the case? That, that maybe it diminishes some of the contributions that were made early on in the marriage relative to where the parties might be at that particular moment when equitable distribution happens, which which due to separation could be radically different between when they separated and when they actually have their equitable distribution concern. You know, I can't say for sure what the answer to that question is, because I looked at hundreds of cases and I looked at cases over a 40 year period, but it's not enough cases to draw such specific conclusions. You can draw broad conclusions. You know, you can say, look, as a general rule, if the recipient is really sick, then she's she or he is probably going to get some alimony. But you'll find cases where there's two sick people and one gets a lot more alimony than the other one, even in somewhat similar circumstances. So you can't be that specific. There's a lot of unpredictable. Well, well, there's trends. Yes, there's trends. Ill health, being close to retirement, long-term marriage, big income disparity relative to the size of the estate. Those are trends. But for each handful of cases where there's a recipient in poor health, there's another case where there's a recipient in poor health who didn't get nearly as much. So it's a little hard to be too specific. I hear you. It should be the current circumstances that you look to. There's a good York County case where um, the trial judge said, look, the wife has an MBA. She's really smart. She has a lot of talent, but she's been out of the job market for, I don't know, 15 or 20 years, and she's never going to make what she would have been able to make had she been in the job market all those years when she was raising the kids. So, you know, the judge looked at the current circumstances in that case, but I don't know how much you can Compare that case to any other given case. 
and just just to clarify, Kathy, I mean, just with respect to, again, Pennsylvania as a whole, we are not a state that has a set alimony term, which is based upon the years of marriage. For example, I think there are some people out there that believe Pennsylvania might award alimony one year of alimony for every three years of marriage or two, you know, one year of alimony for every two years of marriage. We are not that state in Pennsylvania, correct? Right. That's our our rule of thumb is one third the duration of the marriage. This is a rule of thumb that lawyers use. One third the duration of marriage from date of marriage to date of separation take away the APL period during separation. But if you look at the appellate cases, the definite term awards out of, I looked at 77 cases, probably 53 of those awards exceeded that one third duration. Some of them substantially. So there's at least one case where the duration of the alimony was about two and a half times the years of marriage, not one third the years of marriage, two and a half times the years of marriage. And so, yes, we do have that rule of thumb. I use it. We use it when you can't figure out any other way to measure the duration of an alimony award. But that's not what the appellate courts are are looking at. And that rule of thumb is also informed by the overall estate. So, you know, alimony in Pennsylvania is a secondary and uh, a secondary award. So in, in the studies that you've made, how, how much do you have you found that 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 the allocation of the estate inevitably influences the outcome of alimony? Well, well yeah. And, and Aaron, before you go, Kathy, I mean, I, I have the alimony you know, statute right here. And I, I think it is certainly relevant to, to clarify that, you know, when a decree has been entered, the court may allow alimony if it deems reasonable to either party only if it finds that alimony is necessary. And right. that, that necessary requirement, Kathy, the courts, you know, are still finding that alimony is necessary and that necessary is not really defined. Oh, it's not defined. And that's that's such a lament of so many people because it makes it hard to figure out when to award, how much to award, and how long to award. To Aaron's point, yes, there are cases where the amount of alimony, where well, first of all, alimony might be denied given the size of the estate and the percentage division, or it might be limited in some other way. So, for example, you might say, well, it's in a, in, in, a, in a different situation, this would have been a 10-year order, but this time it's two years just to transition the spouse into the new lifestyle. But the amount, the value of the estate and the percentage division of the estate do have an impact on alimony. You can see that in the cases. It's just that the number of cases where people get divorced in the state of Pennsylvania, there's just not that many where they're multimillionaires. We, we see them, but the vast majority of these cases are not multimillionaires where the estate is big enough to support somebody. You know, the half the estate or 60% of the estate is enough to support somebody for the rest of their lives. The, there, there's a flip side to this, too, because you'll get a very small marital estate with a big income disparity. So if you have a $50,000 marital estate, gives the dependent spouse $5,000 more than she would get in an equal division. If the income disparity is $50,000 a year, 
or $100,000 a year, that $5,000 is nothing. And, so it, it cuts both ways. And and I think, you know, just not to ignore that point is to look at the actual economic realities of an alimony award in the context of the marital estate. And in fact, I think, I don't think you said it, but I correct me if I'm wrong, I believe you were, is that a very, a case that is very prime for an award of alimony is small marital estate, longer term marriage, long, or excuse me, a great disparity in income. Yes, but I, I would just say to you, another situation where alimony may be very much needed, even if not frequently awarded, is the situation where it's a short-term marriage with two or three small children under the age of six and a pre-separation agreement by the parties that one of them was going to stay home with those children until they got into school. If those parents separate before the children get into school, it may not be a long-term marriage, but there may be a real need for alimony there. And when you said pre-separation agreement, you don't mean a written agreement. No, just this was our deal. This was what we were going to do. We were going to have three children and mom was going to stay home with them until they all got in school. Then she was going to go back to work. And that was the plan. And, and you see that plan pretty much in the execution. That's what they did. You know, so the cost of child care makes it crazy for her to go back to work with three kids in most cases. And one other thing I just want to get back to again is what we can rely upon as attorneys or anyone who's trying to ascertain what a court would do is look at what other courts have done, right? Right. And I think what you said, the challenge is, while a lot of people are getting divorced in Pennsylvania, the data pool, which are appellate court decisions of what appellate courts are deciding regarding alimony, is just so small. And why, I mean, just Kat, just quickly, could you explain, I mean, why is it so small that we just don't have a lot of cases to point to? Well, it's small because, first of all, it's only been 40 years. 40 years since the divorce code was enacted in 1980, the no-fault code with the alimony provisions. That's nothing in the context of the law. Think about property law that goes back for centuries into England. So you just don't have the, the caseload to generate enough cases. Not every case that goes to the superior court involves alimony or an alimony appeal. I didn't necessarily look at every case, every divorce case that went to the superior court. I looked at cases where they addressed alimony. So um, I don't know, you know, most people who get divorced are young people with short-term marriages. They don't have, they may not have any money, they may not have any children, and, and they may not have a big income disparity. It's not an alimony case. The alimony cases are the ones that are less usual in the divorce caseload. The older people, the, the divorce rate in that category is lower than it is for the younger people. But the younger people don't have any money, so they don't have any appeals. Yeah. All right. I don't know, getting... They may not even have lawyers. Well, right. So we, we've been talking about the courts and what the courts have can give us guidance, because at the end of the day, if the parties can't reach an agreement regarding alimony, that's who makes the decision, right? I mean, either the court or unless the parties have agreed to have someone else make that decision. Stepping aside from the court process, getting to more kind of the concepts 
of how you might think alimony comes into play outside of court, but so an outside of court type resolution. Just are there things that you think about or you've seen other attorneys utilize alimony and how they utilized, how, how they have utilized alimony in an effective way to resolve it, to resolve a, you know, a financial settlement? Well, one of the things that you always think about when you're trying to settle a case is sort of like, what's the liquidity situation? What, how, how much money is there that we can divide up now to provide for each of the parties? Sometimes there's a lot. There's investment accounts and real estate and da-da-da and all kinds of different things. Sometimes there's not. Sometimes the primary marital asset is a business owned by one of the parties that's worth a lot of money, generates a lot of money, but that's it. And to, to do the buyout and to pay alimony, you're just relying on one asset. And you can't raid that asset too much because if you do, you'll kill it. There's, there's a limit to what you can take out of a business. The business has to grow or it's going to die. So I think about it's just a way to move alimony, particularly now with the changes to the federal income tax law. Alimony is just another way to move money from one party to the other party. You know, and now there's not even a tax impact. In the past, one of the things that we would do, and still we still do sometimes, we'll have a set number that, that the spouse has to pay. You have to pay a million dollars. And you have to pay alimony of say sixty thousand a year, and it's but it's really interest on the debt, and you'll terminate it if the debt gets prepaid, um, things like that. Now, see, in the past, you could call it alimony; it would be taxable to the recipient, deductible to the payor, and that was cool because if you called it interest, it would still be taxable to the recipient but not deductible to the payor. Now that's all gone. From a from a perspective of, again, the resolution of alimony, have you used certain events that could occur in the future? You know, possibly you're representing a spouse who has alimony exposure. Do you try to come up with maybe certain events that could occur in the future to end that alimony? Because, I well, again, I know we represent clients on both sides, right? You know, the recipients and payors. And often, I mean, do you find it's helpful to pick an event to start to either reduce or eliminate alimony? I like to – I prefer to do it that way when I can because I think it makes more sense than an arbitrary one-third of duration rule. So you may look at the point in time – when the recipient can get into a retirement account without penalty. You may look at the point in time when the payor spouse is likely to retire or eligible to retire on a full Social Security. You may look at the kid's high school graduation or college graduation. There's events in people's lives where it just kind of makes sense that they would then, at that point in time, sort of redo their financial circumstances and situation. And getting getting back to redoing those situations, you know, I've I've heard of some individuals doing this one dollar alimony awards. Have you seen that come up or why would one dollar? I mean, what's going on there? You could do that. Suppose the um, payor spouse had a five hundred thousand dollar a year job for year after year for many years 
and then for some reason lost that job, whether it was a layoff or economy related or the business folded, whatever it is. Well, that person can't afford to pay alimony from unemployment compensation. But if that person is able to get another job within the same range, then maybe you start an alimony order at that point in time. And along those lines, what's your experience in using alimony trusts? And have you seen that increase or decrease since the, the Tax Reform Act of 2017 that it eliminated the taxability and tax, the tax deductibility of alimony? I can't think of a case where I have used an alimony trust in, I don't know, 10 years. Have you ever done that? No, it's, it's never really seemed like the situation has warranted it because in the past, it's either been because there was maybe an advantage to be gained, a mutual advantage to be gained through the taxability or tax deduction of the alimony. Or alternatively, we were we were looking at alimony as a you know piece of the larger puzzle, and it just it never made sense. And then and then furthermore, there was never really the risk of uh, the, the economic risk that might really justify doing it. I'm with you. You know, the place where you might get involved in use of trusts is more likely prenups than postnups. If you have a, a, a wealthy spouse and a less wealthy spouse, you might, the wealthy spouse might commit to a trust. And you see, you do, we do trust commitments for kids, but I can't think of one for a spouse. I, I'm with you. It just never seemed like we needed to do it. Yeah. And, and I could never really tell whether it was we're taking advantage of something functional and useful or if it really just never really lent itself to a yeah. lot of situations. So I do think in the prenuptial you know, concept, it can make some sense, particularly where you've got significant disparity of separate assets or where you have a situation in which a party may, may be receiving significant assets through trust or other estate planning you know, mechanisms within their family's estate. But I was just kind of curious as to whether that, along with any other trends that you saw relative to that tax reform that really you know seemingly sort of took some of the some of the the, the uh, some of a tool out of our bag a little bit uh, and how we could how we could really structure agreements yeah yeah it, it really has made a difference in some cases in how you structure the agreement you know the other case in the prenups is where it's a second marriage there's children of the first marriage you want to provide for the new spouse but not for her kids so, or vice versa, the rich wife doesn't want to provide for his kids. So you can do a trust and then have the corpus go to the children after the death of the survivor. So, Kathy, again, just to kind of bring this back um, a, a little bit, I think this dovetails a little bit with what you were discussing here with Aaron about the trusts. We talked about trends in courts. Let's just talk about to the extent you've seen any trends in with clients and is alimony still something that clients who possibly, you know, who are recipients want? I, I think it's safe to safe to say that if we represent a client who has an alimony exposure, it's safe to say that that individual would likely want to pay the least amount of alimony possible. Do spouses who have the opportunity to receive it, do you see clients still wanting that to be a large component of the financial settlement, or has just there been a trend for it to be just less sought by clients? I think that most intelligent potential recipients want to get as much as they reasonably can get 
in their divorce settlement without going to court, and it's secondary to them what the elements of the package are called. So call it property, call it alimony, call it council fees. That's secondary. However, there are a couple of other things that I think the recipient wants. Well, in particular, the recipient would prefer that alimony not terminate on cohabitation because to every recipient in the world that seems so unfair, particularly if the marriage terminated because of the payor's adultery. So wait, just just to clarify, just briefly. So if if the determination of alimony gets to the court system and the court is the entity that makes the decision regarding alimony and a spouse who's receiving alimony cohabitates, what happens to alimony? That's a terminating factor under the divorce code. So under the divorce code, alimony would go for as long as the court orders it, subject to earlier termination on the remarriage or the cohabitation of the payee, the recipient. And it doesn't matter if the payor has likewise cohabitated with any individual. The payor doesn't matter, right? Right. Right. The payor can cohabit to his heart's content or her heart's content, but not the payee. And that always, well, that very often bothers the payees. Now, the thing that I think both sides like and want with respect to alimony is some degree of um, predictability and, and knowing what their future holds. So a set amount and a set duration is often very attractive. And if that involves some limits on termination on cohabitation, you might be able to sell that to a payor just because it helps with the predictability factor. Alimony is modifiable in amount. It can go up or down unless the parties agree that it's not going to do that. That keeps them out of court. The non-modifiability provisions, the limits on cohabitation, cohabitation termination, they help keep people out of court. If you don't agree that she's, you know, if, if the recipient says, I'm not cohabiting, he's only here on weekends, he's only here on weekends twice a month, and I'm not cohabiting. And if the payor says, oh, yes, you are, well, now you've got a court battle, which is the last thing that most people want after they've gotten all the way through their divorce proceedings. They don't want to see the inside of a courthouse. Most sensible people don't want to be in litigation. You know, I, I would say both sides like predictability. Now, you can't, if it's an indefinite award, if it's a very long-term award, it starts to be like you can't limit modification because there's so many things that can change in the future. He could lose his job. She could hit the lottery. What are you going to do? You can't make it non-modifiable forever. But if it's a relatively short-term award, three, five years, something like that, people will agree to make it a set amount, a set duration, and limits on um, termination on cohabitation. And one, yeah, go ahead, Aaron. I just wanted to you know, touch on the cohabitation piece a little bit because we've now been a few years deep in which we've had the availability of same-sex marriage all you know, throughout the state. And, and under Pennsylvania's code, currently that cohabitation is specific to living with someone of the opposite sex. So yes. At this point in time, have you either through your practice or have you seen any cases in which someone has addressed the fact that the same-sex couple are cohabitating together uh, and effectively trying to get around that cohabitation provision of the code? 
The only case I know about is, I believe, out of Chester County, and I believe it was Judge McElroy, and it was a property settlement agreement. And the recipient began cohabiting with a person of the same sex. And as I recall, the judge terminated the alimony on the basis that the cohabitation agreement applied the like the the general understanding of the word cohabitation, not the divorce code legal understanding. That's the only case I know. But I think it would be very interesting if somebody were to challenge, I mean, look, what are you going to do? You've got two situations. One is the property settlement agreement where you can be specific and you can say either gender if you want. But then the other is the court order. And I guess you'd have to tell the judge you want your order to say either gender. I don't know. So, well, and so I think really, sorry, Anthony, but what you're really kind of getting to is that when you have ambiguity in a contract, which are agreements or contracts, you start to look at traditional contract law. And yeah. so the judge in that case was using the reasonable interpretation of what cohabitation meant rather than strictly applying our statute. And uh, and I think maybe taking it a little bit further, I mean, you, you, you also have to account for situations in which a party receives alimony. Cohabitation with either opposite sex or same sex may actually be an economic decision, whether it's a roommate, you take on, you, take on, you, you, you rent a you know, portion of your property to somebody. And have you seen anything that had to deal with it from that just purely economic standpoint? Someone really is just dealing with it as a, as a way to cover expenses or to help mitigate some of the financial burden. Well, you know, there's sort of like two answers to that question. One is that's maybe the way it ought to be considered, that if you're going to make cohabitation a factor in alimony duration, why don't you look at the economic impact of the cohabitation, but put that aside because that's not what we do. There's at least one case where it was a defense to a cohabitation claim that he was really just living there temporarily and da-da-da. That woman didn't win. Cohabitation was found, but I don't know. It was kind of a close call, I think, in that case. I I can't remember. Maybe they were in the same bedroom. I don't know. But it wasn't a long-term thing. And he did say he was paying board, I think. And just to clarify here, Kathy, I mean, what, what we're talking about with respect to the modification of an uh, or termination of an alimony award that's entered, if it's entered by the court, you look to the statute as to how it might modify or terminate. And if it's entered by agreement... You only look at that agreement as to how it would be modified or terminated. Right. It's interesting because a court order under our statute is modifiable in amount, up or down, and it terminates on cohabitation and and remarriage. Whereas alimony and agreement isn't modifiable and it doesn't terminate unless you say that in the agreement. And that's also our law. It seems a little upside down, but that's our law. So you have to be specific in your agreement. If you want it to be modifiable, you have to say that. If you want it to terminate on cohabitation or remarriage, you've got to say that. You can't rely on the statute. And that, yeah, the helpful in, interpretation there of of modification of alimony. All right. Um, so, Kathy, we're kind of coming here to to the end of our time. From from your experience, you know, inside the court system, representing clients, where really do you think alimony really should be going? And do you just do you believe that really it makes the most sense and it's the most appropriate? And is there any way to put predictability in that? Not, not I just <laughs> threw, threw a lot of questions at you, but 
I think you can I think you can hit it with something valuable here at the end. If I could dictate one thing about alimony, I would dictate greater uniformity in our treatment of what reasonable needs means. You're supposed to look at people's reasonable needs. But what does that mean? So first of all, I would say in every case, you have to look at both parties' reasonable needs. You can't judge what's reasonable for the dependent spouse if you don't look at how much at the lifestyle that the other spouse is living. If one spouse is living in a penthouse apartment that costs $5,000 a month and the other spouse is living in North Philadelphia, well, yeah, she's got a house. She's living there. But that's not reasonable given what's happening with the payor spouse. I think so you have to look at what both people have and what they're spending and what's reasonable in light of their circumstances, as Aaron said, currently and also during their marriage. When you're determining reasonable, it seems to me that you're not meant to go in and nitpick what the payee spouse spends for, um, I don't know, clothing and food and da-da-da, unless it's ridiculous. It's not supposed to be nitpicky. It's supposed to be balanced and, and thoughtful. You're not, you know, super budget cutter judge. That's not what you're supposed to be doing. Figure out what's reasonable for these two people. And what, what I just heard, and I really like, and this is quite frankly one of the first times I've heard this with respect to alimony, is so much attention is paid to the payee and the payee's reasonable needs. And what you just said, I think almost twice woven in there, was you need to look at both parties. The the notion that an alimony determination solely focuses on the payee and is uber critical of those expenses is ignoring the reality of the fact that two people got married, two people decided to enter into this marriage without a prenuptial without a prenuptial agreement that that determined alimony if they would separate or divorce, right? Mm-hmm. And that since that is the nature of a marriage, the nature of an alimony award should be more consistent along those lines as well. Yeah, one of my favorite um, writers, Brett, Brett somebody, I can't remember his last name, said, if you focus only on the payee spending, it's pretty good. I think, and I think Phyllis Beck has made this, um, made this point as well in one of her decisions. If you focus just on the payee, you inevitably are going to enter an order that's too low. You're not going to get to the right point if you do that. So I think now the American Law Institute would switch our attention entirely away from reasonable needs and tell us to look at what the um, payee lost as a result of the marriage and the separation. What has the payee lost in lifestyle? What has the payee lost in the job market? What has the payee lost by her, her or his investment in the other party's career? I get that. I hear that. I'm not sure that you're going to get to this any more predictable outcome that way than if you just focus on figuring out reasonable needs correctly. If you would do that, then I think there's going to be a lot less variation from county to county and decision to decision in the outcome in these cases. That's If I could dictate, that's what I would... I would say, come on, guys, let's get to the same 
wavelength on what reasonable needs means. That doesn't mean you all are going to, you judges are all going to enter the same duration awards or the same amount, but can we at least get on the same wavelength about reasonable needs? And I don't think it's rocket science. I don't think it's that hard. I just think people need to stop a second and think about this. Think about this in the light of the statute, in the light of the case law, and what the appellate courts have said, and all the tools and information that is needed, that's all there to, to do it right. So in, in, in that vein, in, in sort of our current system, both in terms of custody, support, even equitable distribution, where we're really striving to create some uniformity of outcomes, it sounds to me as though alimony is still one area where lawyering and advocacy is still immensely valuable in trying in, in the presentation of your client's position and 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 their and their needs relative to the estate. I agree, Aaron. I do. I really agree. But I think that if you're advocating in front of somebody whose mind is set on the idea that whatever the payor is spending is irrelevant and the payor's expense form is irrelevant, you can advocate till you're blue, but you're not going to get to the right outcome for your, if you're representing the dependent spouse. That's what I think. I think people come into this with sort of inflexible mindsets sometimes, you know, of, of this is how it should be or this is how it is, and they're not thinking it through. And, 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 would and, that be, and that, could that be a natural outcome of, of sort of the not thinking through? Is that a natural outcome of really trying to push for a more uh, almost guideline-based type of economic system? You know, it's interesting. There's more and more decisions in recent years where the alimony is linked in some way to the guidelines. Got to be careful because it would be a mistake to just enter a guidelines award and not think about the factors and the cases have made that clear. But there's at least eight cases in the past seven years where alimony was somehow linked to guidelines and it was affirmed. So it may be that the trial judge looked at both the guidelines and the factors or the superior court said, well, look, it's less than guidelines, but it's for a long duration or it's a short duration, but it's more than guidelines. Stuff like that where it's linked to guidelines. That's one way to do it. That would make things predictable. Maybe that's the right answer. I don't know. Well, look, I, Aaron and Kathy, I, I think we are about out of time. Um, I think actually, maybe in a follow-up podcast, maybe this is done <laughs> annually. I think we might be getting some more guidance in that regard because I do believe there was a somewhat recent Superior Court decision that was not published. But it was made available to view as an unpublished opinion. However, an order was later entered, I believe, in that case, removing the availability to see that opinion because I believe there was going to be additional argument. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Do you know um, and and uh, I don't did know. Did you really just create a question for this podcast? I, I did. <laughs> um, Kathy and Aaron, uh, thank you so much here on on the with the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law section. Thank you again for your time. Um, and I look forward to working with both of you here as as Pennsylvania Family Law continues to develop. Okay, thank you. Right. It, was, it was great. Thank you. 
Thank you. Law and the Family is a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section. To learn more or to join the section, visit the Pennsylvania Bar Association website at pabar.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And to catch up on every episode, join us at anchor.fm slash law in the family. A reminder that nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the guests and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Thanks for listening and tune in for future podcasts.